Coming at you from the basement of Critterton. Is this her new opening? <laughs> Hi, and welcome to Film Fam Inspired by True Events. I'm Heather. Hi, I'm Brian. Hello, my name is Zoe Gray. I've not yet emancipated myself from my parents, so I am still, as of this moment, the daughter of both Brian and Heather Gray. <laughs> we are the Grays, and we're your Film Fam. Today, we are talking about classic adventure movie, AFI Top 100 Film Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark is what it's actually called. <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark with uh, introducing Indiana Jones. I think originally it was just Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. But now when they market it, they say Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I That's what I was going to say. And then I was like, wait, it's Raiders. Yeah. So guys, guys, just for context, in case I'm just like unfunny oh, and right. yeah, dead today. Zoe, Zoe has a PSA. Zoe has P-S- a COVID vaccine yes, PSA, PSA to share. Everyone, go get your second shot. Please, please get your second shot. Um, But immediately after you do so, do not go to a party and drink alcohol because you might end up throwing up on the streets of New York and having chills and a fever. So don't do do the first part, but don't do the other part. Excellent. Great hypothetical. Yes, just... It was a cast party for a show that she had just been in, an online show. And it was outdoors, was- socially distanced. Yes, of course. Um, I socially distanced myself away and then was very ill. Uh, and it is now the morning after that. Uh, I am just toasty, by which I mean don't have a fever anymore, but my skin still feels weird. So, but <laughs> I'm so glad we're doing Indiana Jones because I love this movie and I think it's going to cheer me right up. Okay. Is your skin weird? Like it, you need moisturizer or? Um, it sort of feels like all of like the organs in my body, including my skin are limp. Aww. Which is a weird feeling. It sure is. Limpy skin. <laughs> is it- so this is the first time you've ever thrown up from drinking. I would like to say that I threw up from the COVID shot. Actually, the only other time that I ever threw up after drinking was when I had pneumonia the same time that I went to a graduation party and drank. And that night I also had like crazy fever. Yeah. And I think don't just maybe I shouldn't. And also by drinking, you had one glass of wine. <laughs> Look, I'm five one. I <laughs> no, but I wanted people like you weren't drinking till you threw up. You had a, mm-hmm. one glass mm-hmm. of wine. For the record, Zoe weighs forty seven pounds. <laughs> you are responsible, but uh, yeah, but I should not have done that. You should have googled. Don't do that. <laughs> but it's it's always a combination. The only times I've ever thrown up after drinking is when I was also at the same time stupid <laughs> and drank too much. So mm-hmm. Zoe is not. Marion Ravenwood able to drink some big old Tibetan men <laughs> under the table is what we're what we're hearing. I mean, I'd like to see her after a second dose of Pfizer. So yeah, we're talking about Indiana Jones, which I used to say that Indiana Jones: Raiders of the Lost Ark was my favorite movie, and I wasn't saying it was the best movie, just that it was my personal favorite movie from my childhood that I still held on as like that's my favorite movie. Right, but you had not seen Borat yet. 
I'm going to guess as to what you are going to say your favorite movie is now. Is it? Okay, go for it. Get three guesses. The Philadelphia Story? No. That was all I got. Dad, take the second <laughs> guess. Uh, it happened one night. Oh, no. Third third guess. Mm, Rushmore. Parasite. Ooh. Rushmore is really good. Uh, Parasite is really good. Those are two very good movies. I don't know. It's just now that I've been watching the AFI top 100 films of all time, I'm actually like, I don't think Indiana Jones should be on <laughs> this list. And... Um, I have other favorite movies now, I think, because I've seen like some of the best American films ever made. And But best doesn't necessarily mean favorite. Brian, do you want to talk about like, what's your relationship with this movie? My relationship with the movie. I don't remember the first time I saw it. It was not in the theater. It was probably on VHS or maybe, maybe cable or something. Um, I do remember I saw it young enough that I didn't follow the entire plot. I didn't catch things like the uh, the Nazis were keeping up with Indy because they got the uh, a copy of one side of the amulet ah, that's a burned cool, into that's that guy's hand. But then they didn't have the other side of the amulets. They didn't know to subtract one uh, one whatever from the height. Uh, you're digging uh, in are, the wrong place. That's the these line. These are important right? <laughs> plot points uh, that I, I I didn't really get. I think I figured they were just following Indy, and that's how they were figuring that out. Even getting to uh, knowing that they should go to Marion's place, I'm still not sure if they followed Indy there or if they used information from Belloc, who knew about Abner. No, the guy with the the Nazi who follows him, his name is like, oh, Talk? Toft? It's something like that. Zoe, look it up. That guy was actually on the plane in the background when Indy was going to... Uh, okay, so they were bed, following Indy. So, For some reason, I was thinking, I was, I was thinking maybe Belloc knew about Abner taught. through Indy, but taught that's it. Okay. Well, but was as a child of the '80s, was it one of your favorite movies? I don't think I ever would have said it was my favorite movie. It was up there, and maybe my biggest interaction with Raiders of the Lost Ark was by means of the Atari Twenty Six Hundred Raiders of the Lost Ark game, oh, yes. which required two joysticks to play and you could play it by yourself but my sister and I would play it together we'd trade off somebody is controlling Indy walking around and using the whip and somebody is controlling the inventory and what uh, what Indy's holding or what he's using all the special amulets and things and uh, I played that game a lot more than I watched the movie uh, because the movie's only two hours but that game we, we played hours and hours how about you Zoe what's your uh, background I definitely with- don't remember the first time I saw it because I think it was so young. I mean, yeah, like it was one of your favorite movies and it's like a, one of the more family friendly of the movies we've discussed here, the, you know, like adventure. Um, And so I think I was probably pretty young when I saw it uh, because I I don't remember, but I, I do remember similar to dad. Like, I don't think the plot all got me, but like certain, I mean, the figure of Indy is so like larger than life. Like he, like it's just this unmistakable 
form of like him with the hat with the whip the whole opening scene where he reaches out and grabs his hat again um or the stuff with the snakes like there's so many quotable recognizable moments that i think really stuck with me even if intricacies of the plot escaped me the first time i actually controversial opinion i think i i don't know if i went back right now and rewatched it as well i still would but i liked temple of doom best <laughs> that is controversial was, for sure. It is for sure. I think I really liked I the most recent time I rewatched it, I realized that the main issue with Temple of Doom is not having Karen Allen. Like <laughs> like and, she and racism. A well, bit of racism. right. Yes. Yeah. Sort of. I just Except really... every other indie movie. Uh indie is going into other parts of the world and taking their stuff for white people's museums. And in the second movie, he's actually trying to recover yeah, something for the the people to whom it actually belongs. That's true. I thought it was so metal to like rip a guy's heart out and like eat like that. <laughs> I saw that movie that with my awesome. grandma <laughs> in theaters and she thought it was a little bit too much, but uh, I really liked it. Uh, the, the first two were definitely in my personal wheelhouse. It's like investigation supernatural history like some kind of you know like conspiracies about magic things like i love stuff like that that's the kind of role-playing games i like I, I even read like some of the like young indiana jones books and and things like that that's really in my specific thing that i like i like that kind of thing like more than i like sci-fi i like old-timey adventure with some kind of paranormal supernatural thing stuck in it <laughs> yeah well, well, when when he was, you know, coming up with this, like Spielberg wanted to do a Bond film. That's right. That's what it was like. They were Spielberg and Lucas were on vacation in Hawaii in like 77. And Spielberg was like, I really wish I could do a Bond movie. And George Lucas was like, well, it's not quite Bond, but I have this thing. And I think it has some of that like um, that like sensibility. He's just so cool, you know, like. Right. Like, yeah. He's very confident. But he's more like vulnerable than Bond. He he's not right. quite as good at what he does as James Bond. Which which I like. Yeah. I think that makes him yeah. so likable. Also, For like sure. update on how my morning is going. I didn't have any sugar, so I put honey in my tea, but some got on the outside of the cup and I touched it and I just accidentally rubbed it into my hair. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a whole comedy of errors over here. <laughs> well, I'm going to be talking about the true events that inspired Indiana Jones, uh, the series Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, I'm going to probably call it Indiana Jones a lot, even though we're talking specifically, I think, mostly about Raiders. Uh, Lucas and Spielberg have both said it was based or inspired by old serial films of explorers that used to be um, shown in movies, movie theaters, like in the 40s and 50s. And I'm going to talk about what inspired those serials, the actual people who inspired those serials. And the hero, the specific guy who, if you look up who inspired Indiana Jones, this is the guy that everyone says inspired the character. His name is Roy Chapman Andrews. So he is an academic, an archaeologist, and an adventurer. Sound familiar? Roy Chapman Andrews was born in Beloit, Wisconsin in 1884. Um, Indiana Jones was supposed to be born in 1899. So Indy's supposed to be younger, the, the younger generation. 
Andrews, he spent his childhood outside in Wisconsin, playing in the fields and in the streams. He was a real like outdoors boy. And when he was a teenager, he had his first brush with death. Um, he was in a boating accident. He was canoeing with one of his school teachers in the flood raised waters of Rock River. And they both fell into the river because it was too fast and, and too much water happening. And too furious. Too fast, too furious. Uh, and they were swept away by the current and swept away like from each other. And the teacher, they weren't able to help each other. The teacher did not survive. And Andrews, he ended up grabbing onto a tree root that was like a tree on the edge of the river that was the tree roots were like under the water. And then he was able to like pull himself up from that tree root and and survived. And he said, I must have been born under a lucky star is what he Aww. said, because I survived this and and my teacher didn't. And then he went on to like survive so many different things. So he taught himself taxidermy, which oh, at the time, oh yeah, why do so many of these, <laughs> so many of these stories involve people doing taxidermy? Well, Jaws did, I think, because at the time it was like a profession to taxidermy things, especially if you were into um, science, like biological science. You're taxidermying animals. I mean, it's yeah. kind of an awesome aesthetic. I'm not gonna lie. I guess all it requires is for everyone around you not to think it's creepy. <laughs> yeah, it's not always creepy. Um, he taxidermied deer for local hunters to pay for his college. So after college, that was uh, 1906, he took a train from Wisconsin to New York to pursue a job at the American Museum of Natural History, which we've gone to a lot. And there were no jobs. They're like, no, we don't have anything. And he's like, I'll just wash the floors. I'll mop the floors. And they were like, you have a college degree. And he's like, I don't care. This is where I want to be. So they gave him the job. And he worked just at first mopping the floors of that museum. And then he started helping taxidermy. Because if you if you haven't been to that Get museum. in the door. Yeah. Think about any natural history museum. There's always like these displays of animals from around the globe that are taxidermied. That was what he started doing for them there. Just a year later, um, in 1907, he got sent on his first expedition to collect the skeleton of a whale that had washed ashore in Long Island. It was February. It was really cold. He had to go to the beach. Um, and when they got there, the huge whale carcass was being covered by sand in like a storm that was coming in. And they had to dig out these bones of this whale through the like 50 tons of whale flesh. Like it wasn't like it was already bones, it was oh. flesh. And they had to get in there and they had to pull all, and then their fingers were like freezing because they're sticking their fingers in freezing flesh of a dead whale. And they ended up gathering every single bone out of this huge giant whale and over three days. And he's like, I want to do this all the time. He, actually, he really, really did. <laughs> and think about the big blue whale in the... The, that main big room in the Natural History Museum, you know, the huge whale and that big three yeah. foot, yeah. like that's the kind of whale that, I don't. it's not that whale, but things like that. Like he was bringing back bones so that they could make something like that. So he was, he was like, okay, well, I'm super into whales now. Whales are my thing. So from there, he went, spent the next few years tracking whales and studying their behaviors and writing about whales because no one had really been caring that much about whales. They're like, whales exist and we kill them for things, but we're not really studying them. I mean, it was early in various ways. It was, what I say, it was like 1908 at this point. So he was like, I'm going to make whales my thing. 
And he first he goes to Asia and he goes to Korea and he discovered a population of gray whales that they thought was previously extinct. And then in Japan, he learned to speak Japanese. He stayed at a famous Japanese brothel called Jimpuro, which means nectarine, and he tried opium. So he's he's that kind of Alrighty, adventurer. Then. He's not just studying whales. <laughs> no, he's not like a fucking nerd. No, apparently not. No, he's he going to party. He likes to party. He's a t- get my COVID vaccine, have a glass of wine kind of <laughs> yeah, guy. Those you, opium man. parties where everyone just, just kind of <laughs> lies on the couch. So on that trip to Asia, he, this is, I'm going to list different things because he actually wrote like 15 books and each chapter of the book has 47. I mean, each book has like 47 chapters and then each chapter is a huge adventure. So I'm not including every adventure. Sometimes I'm just going to list things. So on that trip, in Asia, he spent two weeks stranded on a deserted island in Indonesia. How he did survived. That happen? <laughs> <laughs> I actually was researching and just skimming the book, and then I Brian's like, "What do you do?" And I'm like, "Oh, I'm just reading these books because nice. they're very, they're very interesting." Um, and they they were very inspirational. Like I said, they inspired all these serials of like, "Oh, here's real life adventurers having create, you know, like archaeologists having really cool adventures," and this. This is where this came from. And here's the time they made me walk the plank. Well, close to it. Um, so he survived typhoons, heat stroke, poison bamboo stakes, headhunters, a twenty foot python, and twenty foot pythons. He also um, he hated snakes, so that's a thing <laughs> that maybe they uh, why they use that for Indiana Jones because he talked a lot about different times that he had to be around snakes and he hated them. And his father I've, hated rats. <laughs> I have a question, which is. Why were people trying to hit him with poison bamboo stakes and et cetera? Like, was he doing the Indiana Jones thing of going in and just disrupting native communities? Oh, well, probably. But also because (laughs) he was going to places where they had never even seen a white person before. He was going to places where it was not like towns and cities and the governor. It was going out to places where it was just tribal. And they didn't always like just let everybody in. Or they were just scientists. They're like, do white people bleed? Does poison work on white people? <laughs> I, I think usually he was the one that was in danger in these areas because he was going places where he wasn't invited. But he, that was what he was trying to do. It was like, I want to go places and study the things that we've never seen. So I have to go someplace that nobody's gone before to try to see what's there. And then the people who there are like, nah. <laughs> We don't want you here. <laughs> we live but he, here. We're... <laughs> but he wasn't going with like an army or um, a bunch of uh, people who could do anything much to the people. He was always kind of on the back foot in danger. Man, this guy. How many times should he have died? Oh, yeah. Well, he, okay, I'll get to that. At one point, he's out with a ship and they caught, when he was looking, still doing the whole whale thing, which is what he did at first. They caught a 72-foot whale. It was a whaling ship, I guess. And they had caught a whale. And he just wanted to be there to see what was going on. He was trying to learn about, you know, see whaling up close and stuff. And he went out on a smaller boat to take photographs. And why they had the whale caught, but before they'd pulled it onto the bigger boat or ship, the whale smashed its tail down on the smaller boat that he oh, was in. no. And smashed it. And everyone fell into the water. And this is the point where uh, sharks started coming and attack and biting the whale <laughs> and then biting the people in the, they were all the people were like trying to get on like some of the wood and trying to get back to the larger boat, like throw us something, help us. And the captain was like, no, get that whale. 
get the whale, get it on board. <laughs> we don't care about these guys. This whale is worth a ton of money to us and we don't care. And so they all had to make their way back to the ship without any help because they were just dealing with this whale. And uh, some of them died, but not our born under lucky star, Rory Chapman Andrews. He, he survived. That was one of the things that he survived. Then this first trip, although he knew, he knew basic first aid and stuff. And so on this first trip, he also delivered two babies, pulled several teeth, and amputated a man's mangled hand. Oh. Like, he was Damn. also having... I mean, ha- if you're going to amputate a hand, choose the mangled one. <laughs> well, he was like, just, okay, I know first aid. I guess this is what I'm doing now. <laughs> and at the, at the end of the first trip, he had collected 50 mammals, 425 birds, and a new species of ant. And he was only 25 years old at that point. I mean, no offense, but like this guy's cooler than Indiana Jones, maybe. Or he's, he's just pretty... more in the shit. He was not in a family-friendly movie. Well, we only saw th- four, I guess, movies about Indy, but this guy has 15 books, so he has a lot of different <laughs> stories. In 1914, he got a master's degree in science, and he married Yvette Borup. And she was a very cool woman. She was an American citizen who was born in Paris. Her father was an American military attache stationed in France and then also later Berlin. So she grew up among Europe's like elite and the intellectuals. And she would actually make headlines whenever she came back to the U.S. um, because like of her glamorous lifestyle and partying and socializing with aristocrats. And she was actually really close friends with Princess Victoria Louise, the daughter of Kaiser Wilhelm. Ah. So she was a, Yvette was a photographer. And when she married um, Roy Chapman Andrews, they she went with him on the next expedition as the official photographer and videographer. And she had like a mobile dark room mm-hmm. and mobile video room that they had, someone had invented that she took with her out into the field. And the trip was basically their honeymoon. And they spent 18 months traveling through China, Tibet, Burma, and Mongolia, collecting zoological specimens and photographing Central Asia, some stuff for the first time that people in the U.S. had ever seen. We should do that. We haven't had a honeymoon yet. Not an 18-month honeymoon. Not not a trip that we've, we've designated. This is our honeymoon. Well, when the reporters asked her about the trip, before you decide we want to do this exact thing, she said, (laughs) we traveled 35,000 miles. We did 2,000 of those miles on horseback. Mostly we slept in sleeping bags. The wolves howled about us. The wild dogs threatened. Sometimes we followed a tiger to its lair and waited until it returned and shot it so that a dangerous marauder might no longer threaten us at night. We were shot out by bandits, but neither of us were hurt. And we brought back 3,000 specimens from the interior of Asia. Yeah, I'm on board. Sign me up. (laughs) So this was a time where they were like, let's kill animals we've never seen before so we can bring them back and put them in the museum so when i say they brought back animals i mean they killed an animal luckily they bring back three thousand live animals no they didn't bring back 425 live birds but they never got a tiger and they tried several times to track down different kinds of tigers to bring a tiger but they were never able to kill a tiger oh no i'm happy about that (laughs) so tiger the worst honeymoon ever (laughs) didn't even get a tiger so vet's photographs from the trip were published in Royal Chapman Andrews' very popular books. It was called Camps and Trails in China. And she also authored six of the book's chapters. And these books 
that Andrew wrote and with Yvette's photographs were actually like really popular and newspapers all over carried the stories about them in a kind of serial manner. Like, hey, what are these two up to now? You know, like this famous party girl who's an American but grew up in in Europe and this like homegrown Wisconsin adventurer got married and then their their honeymoon is traveling around an adventure. So it was very popular and they were their exploits were always being carried in the magazines. Plus they had videos, which is part of how it got so popular. In one of Andrew's books, On the Trail of Ancient Man, he recalls the 20 times he nearly lost his life in the early years of their expeditions. He said, two were from drowning in typhoons. One was when our boat was charged by a wounded whale. Once my wife and I were nearly eaten by wild dogs. Once we were in great danger of fanatical llama priests. Two were close calls when I fell over cliffs. One was nearly caught I was nearly caught by a huge python, and twice I might have been killed by bandits. Okay, only one of those things has ever happened to me. Which one? The fanatical llama priest? No, the almost eaten by wild dogs. <laughs> Here's my thing. If you're if if there's one time that you're like, oh shit, I almost just died falling off this cliff, like why how do you how are you gonna go do that again? That's his be thing. like I'm gonna do the same thing again and also like two typhoons two typhoons two typhoons that was his thing just to go out there in the conditions so between 1922 and 1939 he went out on five more expeditions that to previously poorly mapped or unknown areas of central asia and the mission his mission to mongolia to the gobi desert was his most famous trip that was really being watched by people in the U.S., um, and there was a lot of film about it. The purpose was to find geographical, archaeological, botanical, zoological, and geological data, but especially to discover fossils of early hominids. And this was, they had this idea that, like, maybe first humans were in Asia. They're wrong. They're in Africa. So they didn't find that. But they did find... um, really just a treasure trove of dinosaur fossils Uh in the Gobi. The Gobi is a huge desert, Zoe. It's like, I'm going to say a million acres, but I'm making that up. Just imagine. Very, very big. (laughs) Imagine our house, our our property, but bigger, much bigger than that. And then a desert. Um, To go into, to do that Gobi desert um, expedition, they brought 40 men, eight cars, and 150 camels to carry stuff. And at that date, that was the biggest land scientific expedition to ever leave the U.S. And the big thing about it was they brought cars into oh, yeah. the desert, which they could only usually go like four miles an hour because <laughs> it was- On camels? Or, no, in the or, cars. Oh, in the cars. They Once they were in far. the cars. Because it was rocky and, and, and sandy and- muddy and just different really bad terrain there was no roads they're just driving these model t looking cars (laughs) (laughs) through the desert and um it was kind of terrible and they called one of their car cars the agony box they should have used dune buggies and they didn't have them so in the gobi they discovered a site full of dinosaur bones even complete dinosaur skeletons and ancient mammal bones the most ever found on a single trip. And the most famous thing they found was an intact dinosaur egg. And they thought at the time, like the public thought, the museum thought that was the first dinosaur egg they'd ever found. But actually a French archaeologist had found one before, but it was less popularized. Um, so they had awesome, thought at the though. time they f- found the very first dinosaur or eggs. And then they're like, 
Hey, Rockefeller, give us some more money. I'll sell you this dinosaur egg. Hey. They sold it? God damn. They sold a lot of them because they had multiple and they wanted more funding. So then these people just had like dinosaur eggs and that they owned. They didn't put it in a museum like Indy wanted. So the Gobi was one of the places that they were threatened by bandits. Um, I read a lot of cool stories. Like I said, I got caught up reading the, about this guy. And um, one day they're coming over a hill. They're at the top of the hill in their old like jalopy. Actually, it was a it was a Dodge. At that time, it was called Dodge Brothers. And the Dodge car was the only that had ever climbed the Twin Peaks of San Francisco higher than any other car and it was also the first automobile to ever reach the floor of the Grand Canyon and climb back out under its own power. So oh. it was like the had the the strongest engine. So they're in these jalopies and they're they're cresting over this hill and they saw some men at the bottom of the hill on horseback with guns kind of like threatening them with their guns and they couldn't back up the hill like so Andrews just drove as fast as he could at them <laughs> and shot his gun. Oh, and some of them rode away on their horses, but one stayed and shot at them. And so then Andrews shot closer to him because he was kind of just shooting his gun. to kind of like, get out of here. Um, and got really close to hitting him from a moving car. And then that guy rode off too. So that's one of the times where they were like. That's totally a scene out of Indiana Jones. <laughs> it really is. Well, the Gobi Desert's also where like the most kind of Indiana Jones-ish snake story takes place. Um, so members of the expedition were sleeping or like starting to doze off in their tents at night in the Gobi. And one noticed a pit viper slithering into the tent. And before getting out of bed and just putting his feet on the ground, he looked down and saw there were even more snakes. <laughs> Two were coiled around his bedposts. In the tent. Two were coiled around his bedposts. Two were trying to crawl into his bed. And other then they, he like calls out and other members in their tents also found vipers in their shoes, in their supply boxes, in their gun cases, and in their hats. In oh. total, they counted 47 venomous, <laughs> venomous snakes invading their camp that night. Oh, man. Yeah, and viper snakes are very, uh, vipers are, are very venomous. Um, so... They had promised the local priests that they wouldn't kill anything because they were on sacred ground, according to the local um, like priests that lived out there. But they did kill the snakes. They're like, we don't trust how to get these snakes out of our tents without killing them. We don't know what to how to do this. So they did kill the snakes. And then the next night, you know, like basically 47 more vipers came back into their tent. Maybe they should just stop being right there. Well, <laughs> and then they got rid of them. And then the next night, the third night, more snakes Ugh. came back. So finally, they're like, there's just a never ending supply of snakes that want to snuggle up and keep warm with us at night in the desert. So we are going to move our camp. So then sure. they, they did move their camp. Wow. Andrew's like, he hated snakes, but he said, um, to meet the popular conception of an explorer, a man must have suffered cold, heat, starvation, fever, attacks from wild animals and savage natives, and must have been bitten by snakes. Snakes are essential. If you haven't had snakes, you can't, ha you can't be a proper explorer. Oh shit. I feel like I got all the others just like right now, last night, but I'm, I'm not there on the snakes one yet. Oh, I've, I've been around pit vipers. Well- Let's get back to how he says savage natives, because he yeah. was that kind of explorer. Um, he did talk some shit about the native people he met in the desert, kind of like infantilizing them or just because they have much lower technology. Like he just thought that they were like childish and dumb or something, which was not cool. But like I said before, 
he, I mean, it was not not cool. It was racist, I should say. It was racist. And he was like a guy who, I don't know that he was always racist in all the situations. I think it was more like when he was in civilized parts of China or Japan, then people were his friends. But when he went out into the desert where people had never seen any, like any of the things that he was bringing, then he was like, oh, these are like little children. But like I said, he was usually the one that was in danger and trying to get people to like him and let him stay alive in these situations. So at least in that way, he wasn't bringing a lot of danger to them. He was just like a guy with a small team. Um, one story, I have my notes, but one story off the top of my head is he was in Mongolia and some people came up and they're like, who are you? Uh, get out of here. We, you know, like we don't like you. And when they came up, he, he was shaving and they don't have a lot of facial hair. And they were like looking at him like, what is he, what are you doing? You're just shaving your face. Like, that's weird. And one of the guys who was with him, um, had dentures on the top and he took his dentures out and they were like, Oh my God, now what is, what now is happening? <laughs> and then another guy had dentures top and bottom and he took both of them out. And then they were like, wow, this is amazing. These guys, like, they shave their faces with knives and they can take they their teeth no out. Teeth. <laughs> and then another guy had a glass eye and he took his eye out. And then they that's were like, fu- that's a, this, this is not actually representative, though, of mo- I think no. that most people don't have dentures well, and glasses. Yeah, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. So, <laughs> and the next guy had a fake head. Leg. Yeah, no. <laughs> then this guy took his eye out and then they were like, wow, this is amazing. Please go on with this amazing thing you're showing us. This is great. But it became such a story that when he went back, like two years later, they're like, hey, it's you. Show us. Take your teeth out. Take your eye out. We want to see it. And uh, he was like, yeah, we didn't have those guys with us this time. (laughs) None of us could do that. And they were like, oh, we needed a better group that that had a better time chewing and seeing. Yeah. Well, a lot of I mean, these are you know, venturing was hard. So sometimes you lost yeah, your you eye or by a snake on the eyeball Who are we to judge? <laughs> for real or on the teeth. <laughs> well, another example of when they were in danger, um, Roy Chapman, Andrews, and he had a British friend with him named Collins, who he made fun of a lot for being British and saying things like quite or rather. <laughs> ah, <yes. laughs> and, and, um, Brits, <laughs> They were hunting um, a huge wild cow that they wanted to bring back because they didn't have the specimen um, to, in the museum. And they were too noisy while they were hunting and they ended up being caught by local bandits. There's a lot of bandit action going on. They got caught by local bandits and they were brought before the bandit chief. And the, Andrews told him like as quick as he could, he's like, uh, we're just American missionaries. And he said that because American missionaries are poor and like not worth ransoming. No one wants them (laughs) and and they don't have a lot to give. So he and then he was still like the guy was the bandit chief was like, oh, okay. then I guess we'll just kill you. And he's like, but wait, I see that your hand is bandaged and I'm a doctor, which he wasn't. And um, (laughs) no. And he's like, I'm a doctor. I'll I'll try to help you because he's just trying to figure out how do I get out of this? He does know enough first aid to be able to cut off some. Is this the guy whose hand you cut off? Because that, uh, damn. No, no, but this this is a later uh, trip. So the bandit chief was like, great, we really need a doctor. We've been fighting a lot with different bandits and many of my men are wounded. And I got this bullet wound in my hand two days ago. Now his lie worked. But Andrew- some guy driving at me in a car <laughs> shot at me through the window. So this lie worked, but now Andrews was stuck actually having to try to do like medicine on these guys or be killed maybe. 
because it was still a very precarious situation. Um, so he just kept bullshitting them. He's like, oh yeah, we'll come back to the temple where I have my medical bag and I will help you. And so the bandit chief and some bandits like ex escorted them back to the temple, which was a religious temple that they were staying at. And the bandits held them at gunpoint the entire time. And then once they're back at the temple, Andrew's got his medical kit that he carried with him, like a normal medical kit that he has as an explorer. And he just like washed the bandit's hand. And then he trimmed like some of the skin around the wound and he put like some ointment on it. And he's like trying to think, what else can I do to make it seem like I'm a doctor? He bandaged it back up. And then he put... He he's he felt like he knew from living in China that they really put a lot of stock in internal medicine. And so he's like, I need to have him drink something because then it'll seem like I'm really doing more. So he put a malaria pill in some water, but said it was like something else and then gave it to him and he drank it. And then the bandit chief was like, I'm all right. Of malaria. Awesome. Well, yeah. they, they didn't tell him it was malaria. He's like, and this is also for your hand. Right. Um. And so the bandit chief was like, hmm, okay, maybe. Uh. Okay, but I want you to look at another man. This is my most trusted captain. And he came in. The captain came in. His head was bandaged. And when Andrews unwrapped the dressing, the guy's brain was like poking. Like there no. was like a wound that has Ooh. his brain was exposed. So, so that he was like, is maybe above his pay grade. <laughs> yeah, he was like, wow, I don't really know what to do about this. This is this is it. We're gonna die because I don't know how to Big do anything about skull. Oh, it's that's like trep trepanation or something. Trepanation. Oh, that's I think when you drill. But well, I assume that's he kind had of been... to, to alleviate pressure on the head, right? I don't right. Think there was any. There was already a hole. There was already a hole. You're I think right. for this, you need to you need to cut a piece of uh, non-reactive metal and, uh, and and bend it to the shape of the skull and put it in and see. And Dad would know what to do. Well, so he they used did to do it with coins. Sometimes. He kind of did something like that. So he took out a straight razor, which they had never seen, and he shaved the hair around it so that it. And then he cleaned a, around on the skull area. And then he got a new bandage and he put the bandage really nicely over the hole in the head. <laughs> and, then, and then he gave him a malaria pill and some water and was like, all right. And, and really uh, did the, help them. I, don't know. I can't do anything about your brain, but <laughs> you won't, you won't have get malaria. malaria. <laughs> yeah. Well, the guy was, the captain was like, all right, this looks so much better. I'm really happy. <laughs> I, I feel better about this. Um, I think maybe they based that scene in Spies Like Us off of this story. <laughs> Where they had to go in like they're in Turkey or Afghanistan or something. Yeah, and he had to like do an appendectomy. Yeah. Okay, so then they brought in another guy. This guy had his leg almost shot off. So he cleaned it. He used like a basic stitch, sewed up what he could and bandaged it. He's like, okay. And so then over the next three hours until midnight, he just, they kept bringing in more people for him to treat and finally, at midnight, he was like, "Did they all become uh, friends at the end?" He, he was like, "I'm all out of medicine," which he wasn't. He's like, "I need to make more overnight." Like, he just needed to stop. He's like, "I'm exhausted. I'm gonna mess up and get us killed. So I'm gonna say I need to make more medicine overnight." So they, he got like five hours of sleep, and at dawn there was a, a big line of people outside uh, waiting to see him. I guess these bandits were all fucked up from <laughs> something <laughs> because so many of them needed help. Every single one had holes in their skull. Yeah, so by 5 p.m., he had treated 76 wounds. Whoa. And all I mean, he really honestly, did... though, he's pretending to be a doctor, but he probably did help. No, yeah, he cleaned them all. Like, yeah. He put disinfectant or ointment, and then he wrapped them in clean bandages because some of them just had, like, I guess, dung that they would just right, put like on having it. having sterile yeah. bandages could really help against infection, like, right off the bat. 
Right. So in that way, he was he was definitely helping. Um, at the end of the evening, Andrews and Collins, they went before the bandit chief and said, he was like, look, I've done all I can for you. Please let us depart in peace. And the bandit chief was like, well, my men really like you here. You're being really helpful. <laughs> and they will not be happy if I let you leave. But you can run away in the night and I won't have them look for you until the morning and it'll be too late. And so that's what they did. And that's how they, they were able become friends to escape. <laughs> so one last uh, snake story. So Andrews was in Indonesia and his guide, a boy named Miranda, suddenly stopped him on the path and whispered like, snake, big snake, and pointed to a tree overhanging the trail. And Andrews looked, but he like couldn't see it. And Miranda pointed again. He's like, right there. It's there, big, big snake. And then the leaves fluttered in the wind and the scene kind of changed and he could see that one of the big branches of the tree wasn't a branch at all. It was a huge python, half as thick as a grown man. So like as thick as Zoe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Half as thick as a grown man and it was just waiting, like hanging over the trail, waiting for like a pig or deer or in this case a man to walk underneath and then it would descend on them and just squeeze them and swallow it whole. So this was like a... Just like John Voight in Anaconda. (laughs) I never saw that. <laughs> um, he plays a Peruvian, I believe, somehow. Yeah, that guy. No, not seeing it. Um, so Andrews was like, oh, shit. He moves way back. And then he shoots the snake uh, with his rifle. And it crashes to the ground. And it's writhing and shaking. So he moves even farther back. He's like, maybe I just made it mad. <laughs> and what if this big snake comes after us? But then it stopped and uh, moving. And they approached it. And then they pulled it straight and measured it. And it was 20 feet long. Wow. Yeah. Then in the late 1920s, uh, due to political issues in Asia and the Great Depression in the U.S., he was forced to leave uh, the Gobi. He needed to come back. He and Yvette divorced in 1931. While they're married, Yvette and Roy Chapman Andrews had two sons, George Burp Andrews in 1917 and Roy Kevin. George Burp? Burrup. Oh, okay. Go on. (laughs) Her last name was Burrup. B-O-R-U-P, uh, Yvette Burrup. And so George Burrup, <laughs> Burrup, Andrews, and Roy Kevin Andrews, known as Kevin. He was born in 1924. Um, but the first man to visit her when Kevin was born was not Roy Chapman Andrews, what Harold Sinclair Chips Smallwood. That is so many cool names. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. His nickname is Chips. Harold Sinclair. Yeah, but in America, they call him Fries. (laughs) Yeah. He was a British uh, lieutenant colonel, I think. Um, So he visited her first. And on the eve of Kevin's marriage, nearly 30 years later, to Nancy Cummings, the daughter of E.E. Cummings, Yvette told Kevin that Chip Smallwood, not Roy Chapman Andrews, was his real father. On the eve of the... I would be, no offense, so mad if you decided to tell me some, something like that on the eve of my, like, way to steal my thunder, first yeah, of all. That's true. That's true. Um, <laughs> Kevin be- also became an archaeologist and a writer, um, and he was especially known for writing about his travels in Greece. And um, Yvette died in 1959 in a traffic accident near Bajaban de Esquiva, a province of Burgos, Spain, and she was 68. Roy Chapman Andrews actually became the director of the Natural History Museum in New York. So a place where he'd originally started mopping floors um, in 1934, he became the director. 
1942, he was now remarried. He retired and he and his wife, Wilhelmina, they moved to a country estate called Ponda Woods in Connecticut. And then he wrote more books about his adventures. And in the late 50s, he moved to Carmel Valley, California, and he died in 1960 in California. So I thought that was really interesting to think that he was still living in 1960. Yeah. He was born in 1884, was it? uh, Yeah, he was born in 1884. So So 86 years old. So that was before, you know, my time. But Zoe, your grandpa Corey would have been 29 and living in California then. He could have met this guy or or gone to something about him. And I think it's it's interesting to think about that. Like um, Indiana Jones, like I said, he was born in, supposed to be born in 1899. So in 1960, Indy would have been 61 years old. And if Indiana Jones had gone on to live to his mid-80s, he could have listened to The Cure on a Walkman. (laughs) I wish he had. I mean, we don't know. Yeah, That's true. They might come out with like a, you know, like Raiders of the Lost Arcade. (laughs) For all we know, Harrison Ford has listened to The Cure on a Walkman. (laughs) I think he has. could have happened. (laughs) Yeah, and, and Roy Chapman Andrews, he could have... Like this guy born in the 1800s could have listened to Elvis Presley and seen Some Like It Hot by Billy Wilder or seen North by Northwest by Hitchcock. Like it's amazing to think that he could have lived so long and done so much and like still lived in our a kind of modern time period as well. I mean, he was born two centuries ago. I'm realizing that I think of Hitchcock as being way older than some of his movies in the 60s. Same. I mean, there's kind of a bridge there because Psycho was during color time, but he shot it in black and white. Makes me think it's older. Yeah, Psycho actually came out the next year. It came out in 19... Well, it came out the same year that Roy Chapman Andrews died, just later that year. Uh, Ah. Andrews died in March, and Psycho came out in the fall or something. But it's interesting to me to think about that and also like to think about Indy getting old and listening. I decided to the cure. (laughs) But that's my story. I hope you guys liked my story. That was an awesome story. I did a lot. Sorry, I'm still trying to think of what music i think indiana jones would listen to what who did um you know like we built this city on rock and roll like i feel like that starship, starship. maybe Jeffrey. that's the kind no of no music i think he listens he to listen john to williams soundtracks he would no i'm saying he could have listened to it like Wait, his, would he have? his granddaughter could have been like grandpa put this this Aww. headphones on and he listen to maybe the cure. more like a straight up rock and roll guy or no, because he was he was like doing stuff in the 30s. He I probably only listened jazz. to like really old timey music. No, but if he was around <laughs> in the 80s, he still is listening to his old timey music. All right, so my turn, huh? Yes. Mm-hmm. We uh, in because we knew we were going to do Raiders of the Lost Ark for this episode, we decided to rewatch the movie and say like like what sticks out? What do we want to hear about? And I just th- there was one line basically near the beginning of the movie that I figured I would base my entire talk on this line. So at the cold open, he goes into this temple and he retrieves an idol and then it gets stolen by Belloc and he comes he comes back and gives his class. And at the end of the class, Marcus Brody, who is affiliated with the university and the museum, I don't know his actual title, his job, is he? I don't know. He's affiliated. He's yeah. probably dean of something or other. Yeah. Uh, and he's talking to Indy 
and he's like, oh, I, I, I had it in my hand. I almost had it. Uh, but I have these other things and I'd like to sell them to the museum. Will you still buy them? And uh, Marcus says, sure, of course, the museum will buy them. We always do. And we're sure that you complied with the International Treaty for the Protection of Antiquities. Hmm. And, I'm not sure. Uh, I, yeah, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, well, what's this treaty? Okay, let's let's talk about Is the history of international treaties. Um, no, it's not real. No, oh. it was totally made up. <laughs> uh, but let's have some fun with some what ifs, okay? So first off, I couldn't decide how to take Marcus's line that he's sure that Indy complied with the treaty. Uh, that could be a uh, a wink, wink. Yeah, like, oh, fun. I'm sure you... Say no more. Sure. Don't tell me the details. I'm sure that you complied. Right. Or maybe he was just being sincere and he trusts Indy. Uh, so let's, let's take that second one. Okay, if Indiana Jones, in getting this idol, complied with the International Treaty <laughs> for the Protection of Antiquities... Let's reverse engineer what that treaty mu- must have been. Yeah. You know, what was okay to do. But that's also and, funny to me if there's no treaty in real life. So they just made up that there was a treaty, even though he did all those things. Like they made that. <laughs> well, we will, we will get back to that. At the time they made the movie, such treaties existed. Oh, but not. In uh, the f- but when 40s. it was set. When it was said, it did not, yes. So I'm going to kind of mix it up here. Yes, we are trying to establish what is what is what does the treaty allow right. based if, on if his actions. If what he did was yes. it allowed in the treaty. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But also along the way, I learned a lot of things about how field work is done in archaeology. I'm going to mix all this up. What did he do wrong from our own current understanding? Um, and what was just uh, just fun facts about archaeology? So Hit me. <laughs> I love archaeology. The first thing of interest to me, because I'm my judgment is the important judgment here. The first <laughs> thing of interest that happens is that Alfred Molina picks a dart out of a tree mm-hmm. and licks the uh, the point of the dart, and he's like, "Oh no!" and he spits it out, and he's like, "Oh, this, these are poisoned." <laughs> um, and this this. This can cut a few different ways. Uh, you know, one, would an archaeologist ever do this? Uh, almost certainly no. I mean, who does that? No no normal person does this. Even if you wanted well, I mean, to taste it, you should like get it off on your fingers and then lick your fingers, not lick actually the sharp point of something. I, also, no. Or just don't I think do you that. Be like, is this poison? Hmm. Well, let me see. Let me, let me put it right in my mouth and see. But also. Venom. It, yes. No, and that's a good point. If you lick venom and spit it out, you're not going to die from that unless you prick your tongue. Because you're licking the or, dart. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the first thing. Yeah, they, um, they, they licked a dart. You don't do that <laughs> because it's dangerous and also gross. Uh, but uh, archaeologists sometimes do lick something. <laughs> that's what she said the inside of their mouth lollipops they yeah <laughs> no you might be out in the field and you're doing a controlled dig and you're digging things up can't tell if it's a rock or a bone or whatever uh if you clean it off and lick it and it sticks to your tongue it's bone 
Oh. oh hells, yeah. Yeah, and, and so that can be a oh, quick no. check. Nazo's really... <laughs> It's harder than you think to clean bone. I have several, like, bones that I got from various places. And, like... Are you sure they're bones? Don't go licking them. (laughs) Don't lick them. Is that a new song? Don't go licking bones. (laughs) Oh, no. the tune of Don't Go Chasing Waterfalls. Yeah, sure. This is getting inappropriate. This is a... (laughs) Well, it's an explicit show, so... (laughs) Yep. It's rated We always check off explicit. Um... But I mean, you're not supposed to, but you're supposed to do like a spectral analysis and 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 determine that it's bone via less destructive means. You know, you don't you don't scrape it, you don't lick it, you don't do anything that might alter it. You try to keep it pristine. Um, but people do anyway because you're out in the field and you don't have access to the. I feel like I would technology. lick a dinosaur bone, but not a human bone. Vice versa. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Let's explore what that says about you. <laughs> I just feel like if I was out doing on a dinosaur dig and we found something that could be a bone, I would I would put it on my tongue to see if it's a bone. Okay. But if we were out like on a people dig, on a, if we were like in a graveyard, I don't think I would just be sticking a bone. <laughs> just in a my graveyard. Is it, are you a grave robber in this scenario? They're yeah, they're all grave robbers. Well, what if you were on an archaeological dig looking for ancient people? No. No. What if you didn't no. know if it was a person or a dinosaur and the only way to find out was by licking it? Got to see what it tastes like. <laughs> it's like 50-50. It's is a this a brontosaurus? <laughs> the bones like a look the same. Yeah. This so. tastes like someone from Wisconsin. <laughs> uh, okay. So lick bones, don't lick bones. Depends on whether your professor's looking. Okay. Um, yeah, and there's so many. Okay. So he uses a treasure map, which... They, there's no treasure map. Realistically, you have an area you want to excavate and you block out, you, you do a grid and you dig and there, there's not a map to get there because it's so old and, and paper degrades. And if you had a document like that, that would be archaeologically significant and you'd want to preserve it and have that in a museum and uh, and not bring it into the field with you where it's going to get destroyed. You'd, you'd scan it and take a printout of it and use that as your map. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So he he shouldn't just take the the treasure map in with him like it's not itself a kind of treasure. Yeah, a lot of the things about this cold opening scene that run counter to common practice are not recognizing things that are actually significant uh, from a scientific right. standpoint. He just wants that gold. He's just going after the idol. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Indy and Alfred Molina go into the uh, into the temple without taking any pictures, without surveying the outside area to determine <laughs> that's true uh, any kind of uh, you know time period, setting it in the context, uh, and really telling the whole story. They just they just they just go in. Yeah, what are they going to say? They're going to be like, "Well, this temp, this we found this idol. It's on display in a museum, and it's like it's from Peru." And that's all we the got. The plaque is like, yeah. uh... Peru, question mark? <laughs> <laughs> because he's not even speaking. I don't want to jump on what you're saying here, but he's not even talking to the Jovito people. Nope. Like Belloc does, but he doesn't. So he doesn't even know that much about it, maybe. Sorry. I don't know if you're already going to talk about that. No, I didn't. But that is <laughs> a good point. And that'll come up in the stuff with the uh, the treaties and, and, and needing to have permission from the local people. So... 
One thing that uh, that was pretty accurate is that, yes, lots of bugs get on you. There's a scene where mm-hmm. both of them are covered in tarantulas. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's not always tarantulas, but where it is that when you're on digs, you're in the ground, you're going to get scorpions and centipedes and ants and creepy crawlies all over you all the time. And other you know, flying bugs, you're going to get mosquitoes and, and oh. tsetse flies and, and all kinds of oh, things. Oh, I mean, and that's in, in Temple of Doom, that whole like room full of bugs that are crawling all over them. Spiders are <laughs> oh, like, yeah. to me, as snakes are to Indy. I don't like them and they're around yeah. me too much. Yep. Yeah. Why is it always spiders? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I think, yeah. well, and the issue with being afraid of spiders versus snakes is like you're so much more likely to encounter a spider in the world. I mean, I guess if you live in California, there might be a lot of snakes, but... Not as many as there are spiders. <laughs> yeah, lots of spiders. Which, in turn, are blown away by ants. Not scared of ants, though. Except I, for, I wouldn't know, want a in whole Texas, lot of them on me. In Texas, we had these big, like, fire ant hills that were, like, one foot, two foot hills of ants. And one of my cousins put me in one once. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> you have the best family. <laughs> boys are mean Uh, all right next order of business booby traps booby traps that's what i said booby traps (laughs) ah goonies so uh yeah there are often curses inscribed in the entrance to a lot of places of interest because they don't want people to rob them yeah like in like indiana jones yeah Uh, but booby traps specifically if they were there and they still worked after, I don't know, a thousand years, uh, that would be the great find of this location. Uh, fuck the idol. <laughs> it's not about the idol. Everybody, Okay, there's, yeah, there's an idol. We have tons of idols. But a working system of booby traps, a thousand years old, <laughs> we could not build that today and have it last that long. That would be amazing, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that would spawn a whole new field a whole new set of grants of people trying to investigate this culture and figure out how they managed to build these booby traps. I wonder what the oldest known booby trap is, or if they had any, but they just didn't work anymore. Maybe that's it. Yeah. Maybe they could find evidence that something hooked up with rope or something hooked up with this or that. It may have worked for a couple of years before it degraded. I mean, booby traps are great for like a role-playing game or, or, you know, also like Goonies because then you don't always have to be interacting with a character, but you can still be in danger. Yeah, also in Goonies, I think, I was about to say it's not as old, but it's probably about three, 400 years old. That's way too old for a booby trap to work. In <laughs> D&D, though, maybe it was just last week that they said it. Well, often it's like the crypts have booby traps, uh, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, a second thing about booby traps is that the professors, the, uh, the the PhDs with a lot of experience, you know, the high up people who organize these digs, they don't go into these places on on their own. They send students to do right. the grunt work for they're them. Interns or something. And they're like, find out everything, do it in the proper manner that I taught you, and get back to me, and I'll take credit for it. Uh, so they'd be sending their students in to these booby traps. <laughs> Sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Okay. The big one here is that in taking the idol, he set in motion the destruction of the entire site. <laughs> but you don't think that would 
just be fine under a treaty? <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe. Get an idol, but r- make sure you destroy the entire thing. Bring it down around your ears. You know, later, uh, they, they they try to set this up in the film that it's done in order to save his life. You know, he's he's he has to escape, you know. He's, he's in the well of souls uh, with this huge statue. I get so upset about that. I'm like, I can't believe he's destroying that huge statue and that whole wall. That wall was 20 feet high, 50 feet wide, and it was absolutely covered with engravings. Hieroglyphics. All, all kinds of stuff that told probably the whole story of that place. Yeah, and where they crashed kept, the statue where, through the wall. Where they kept the Ark of the Covenant and yeah. crashes the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So here we are back at this temple and taking the idol without compensating for the weight destroys the whole temple. First of all, also, what? Why did he, why was he so wrong? Like, if that's fully gold, he needed more sand, not less sand. Right. (laughs) I'm looking at it, and I'm like, you need more sand than that. (laughs) So, yeah, he put sand in a bag. He knew what he was going into, so he knew that if he guessed wrong, he'd destroy the place, and he did it on purpose. Uh, Secondly... He's supposed to be a scientist. I mean, okay, it's archaeology, but still. He's supposed to be a scientist, and he gets a bag that's roughly the size of the idol, maybe twice as big. Gold is 19.3 grams per cubic centimeter. Sand, 1.6. Right, you would need a huge, huge bag of sand. Gold is 12 times as heavy as sand. Can he just use something other than sand, maybe? (laughs) A rock or anything that's expected to be the same weight as the idol, but this was probably one tenth the weight of the idol. Yeah, was this before like Lucas and Spielberg? It was generally known that gold was heavy. This was before scales <laughs> existed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so he he did get the idol, and in the process lost all of the worthwhile archaeology. <laughs> you know. But it's shiny. Um, and, and then, then he didn't even get the idol. And then he didn't get the idol. He got other items of interest that he sells to the museum with no context, no, <laughs> I don't know what uh, what a detective would call chain of evidence, right. any kind of link to where it came from, what it was about, why it was there. Uh, yeah, I mean, we watched this archaeology show, and you know, they put a grid out. They put little flags where everything are. They they take a whole list. Like this was found here at this level in this area of the grid. And he just is like, here's some stuff I yeah. found. They'll find something 50 feet away, but in a certain kind of ground. And they'll be like, oh, this dates this layer of ground at uh, it, sometime between 1200 and 300 CE. So then in another part of the site, they'll find something in the same kind of ground. They know how old it is. This is why he's like more of a treasure hunter. When Belloc is like, you're not that different from me. That's right. You're a treasure hunter. Yeah. So when George Lucas pitched this to Steven Spielberg and, and to you know, the, the producers, the money people, he describes Indiana Jones. He is an archaeologist and an anthropologist, a PhD. He is a doctor. He's a college professor. What happened is he's also sort of a rough and tumble guy. But he got involved in going in and getting antiquities, sort of searching out antiquities. And it became a very lucrative profession. So he, rather than be an archaeologist, he became sort of an outlaw archaeologist. He really started being a grave robber for hire is what it really came down to. Yeah. And the museums would hire him to steal things out of tombs and stuff. Yeah, that 
So, yeah, so that he, implies that the museums know exactly the what kind of shit he's doing and are just like the the ends are worth the means. But I do think that kind of falls through when you think about like to put something in a museum. The point is like to have a plaque and have the you know. So his to contextualize his it. His means aren't necessarily conducive to museum work. Well, did but, they keep going with that, or did they they? They push back and say, "No, he can't just be a treasure hunter." No, they they ran with it, uh, and and that kind of justifies the character. He is an archaeologist, but when he's out in the field doing this stuff, he's not he he's not being an archaeologist. Then he's being a grave robber. If you look at what Indy's done, he's not following the rules of archaeology of like taking his time and 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 using a little brush to brush things away well, or also he can't always because he's like his life is actively in danger most of the time most of the time <laughs> but that's his that's why he's an but adventure maybe, archaeologist maybe and his not life is in danger because yeah. he's going in and doing yes things because like he that. didn't get permission from the, the country to say it's okay to dig here and only you and we'll let you cordon right. this off and bring your students and uh, and do it right. And, and that's why his life's in danger. Right, yeah. Uh, but you know, while we're talking about what Raiders did wrong about all this, um, one thing they, they actually got pretty right is uh, the shots of the Nazis excavating Tannis. Um, there's a, a, an old silent film uh, from the 1920s of this archaeologist named Henry Field, um, Interesting fact, the, uh, the the Field Museum in Chicago, nothing to do with Henry Field. <laughs> I was just going to look that up. I was like, oh, is that the Field Museum? Yeah, no, that was named after uh, some guy named Marshall Field who owned some department stores and funded the museum. <gasps> the Field Museum is Marshall Field's? That's a... Oh, you know Marshall Field? Yeah, it's a store. Well... <laughs> <laughs> Marshall Field. Oh, is that Marshall's? Is it from... Maybe. I don't know. I know it used to be a department store. Uh-uh. Yeah. Yeah. So not this guy, but this guy <laughs> uh, shot film of running a dig in Iraq and the carts, the harnesses, the workers, it all looked exactly like how they showed in the movie. And they probably used that. Uh, the one thing that was very different about the actual way they ran it was they ran it with child labor. It was dozens of child laborers uh, carrying dirt across the site all the time. And uh, in the movie, it not was surprised. Gross. Yeah. Not surprised. Yeah. Uh, so that's... I mean, that's the movie. Now let's talk about real life, okay? So the actual laws and treaties involved with archaeology before 1900, basically nothing. Some countries had some laws that were not enforced and not deemed very important. Uh, But then starting with the 20th century, in 1903, El Salvador claims all cultural property for the state, only allowing the export of multiple artifacts. Uh, I kind of had to look that up, even though I shouldn't have had to. Uh, multiple artifacts are artifacts that there are multiple copies of the same thing. Okay. Uh, if if something is unique, it can't leave. If there's multiples, they'll keep interesting ones, the biggest, the oldest, the first found. But at some point, right, they let them- Right, you have to keep them, every single one Yeah, they them. let them be exported. And that was a common stipulation. Okay. Uh, in 1932, Greece did- uh, Kind of the same thing, uh, but adding that collectors and dealers had to be registered with the country. Uh, and again, only allowing the sale of multiples. And that was in the 30s. Yeah. Okay. So big jump there. Uh, Italy jumped in in 1939, uh, claiming all cultural property more than 50 years old. 
uh, and had to approve exports, allowed the export of declined items. The state declines to keep them. Okay. Uh, so right around this time, this guy named Rorick uh, introduced the Rorick Pact. 1935, the Treaty on the Protection of Artistic and Scientific Institutions and Historic Monuments. Uh, the most important idea of the pact is the legal recognition that the defense of cultural objects is more important than the use or destruction of a culture for, uh, for military purposes. And the protection of culture always has precedence over any military necessity. Oh, yeah. This was ratified by 21 countries. That's great. And it kind right? of was a precursor to... Um, it wasn't worldwide recognized as that important until World War II came around and uh, the Nazis plundered innumerable valuable artifacts uh, and destroyed uh, what they deemed degenerate art. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. they, were, they were a big driving force toward adoption of the Hague Convention for the protection of cultural property in yeah. the event of armed conflict. This was in 1954, uh, and it was the first international treaty that focuses exclusively on the protection of cultural property in armed conflict. Uh, So it wasn't as broad as the Rorick Pact, uh, but it dove deeper into actual protections in wartime. Um, It claimed that any damage to cultural property, irrespective of the people it belongs to, is a damage to the cultural heritage of all humanity because every people contributes to the world's culture. Broadly, it requires that state parties adopt protection measures during peacetime for the safeguarding of cultural property. Uh, Such measures include the preparation of inventories, preparation for the removal of movable cultural property, and the designation of competent authorities responsible for the safeguarding of cultural property. So before war happens, make sure that you can get stuff out of the Mm -hmm. way and protect it. Parties undertake to respect cultural property, not only located within their own territory, but also within territory of other state parties during times of conflict and occupation. They agree to refrain from using cultural property and its immediate surroundings for purposes likely to expose it to destruction or damage in the event of armed conflicts, and don't attack other people's cultural property. Yeah. Uh, So this was was very forward-looking. Uh, and has been shown to be successful. Uh, An example of a successful implementation of the Hague Convention was the Gulf War, in which many members of the coalition forces who were either party to the convention or, in the instance of the U.S., were not party, but they obeyed it anyway, accepted the convention's rules, most notably by creating a no-fire target list of places where cultural property was known to exist. That's great. Yeah. Um, but that just covers wartime. It wasn't until 1970 at the UNESCO Convention, that's the United Nations Environmental, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, mm. uh, 1970 Convention on the Means of Prohibiting the Illicit Export, Import, and Transfer of Ownership of Cultural Property. Uh, it was the most powerful international antiquities agreement to date, and it's still in place today. It's still the most powerful. So you can't just steal it. You have to make go through some kind of channels. That's right. That's right. It, um, it's a multilateral agreement with all signatories that gives members the right to recover stolen or illegally exported antiquities from other member countries, including the United States. So in 1970s, 
the U.S. was actually signing treaties that held it accountable for something. Uh, that doesn't seem to happen that much lately. <laughs> uh, there were over 90 signatory countries as of 2001. Uh, and probably more important, and this is 1983. This is right around Raiders' time, but maybe a, little, a couple years after. So Andy uh, definitely America- couldn't have been doing what he was doing if he'd been around in the 70s. Right. Yeah, or any time after 1983, maybe, because the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, that is when, you uh, see, uh, the way it works, uh, at least with the U.S., is we don't just sign treaties. Uh, a treaty is non-binding on the U.S. We sign treaties and we agree to write a law for ourselves. Um, and so we agreed to the treaty, uh, but then created a law called CPIA, the Convention on Cultural Property Implementation Act. Uh, it's a U.S. law, uh, where UNESCO is multilateral for all signatories, but the U.S. law is bilateral. It allows us to create bilateral agreements with other countries that you don't take our artifacts, we don't take yours. Uh, and so through this CPIA law, the United States was able to sign bilateral agreements with a lot of Mesoamerican, South American, European, and Asian countries who did not sign onto UNESCO for the multilateral agreement. Uh, they weren't willing to say, we'll return cultural artifacts to everybody, but between us and the U.S., we'll make that. And it's something, uh, whereas previously there was nothing. Um, And what it says is that designated archaeological and ethnological materials require an export license from their country of origin to be imported to the United States or proof that the object left the country of origin before the effective date of the agreement. And so since 1983, there's been a lot of control over cultural artifacts leaving even when it's not wartime. That's good. Yeah. Uh, One country that notably has stayed away from all such agreements is Switzerland. Uh, In addition to being neutral in all other respects, they're neutral here, uh, which may explain the country's importance to antiquities smuggling. Um, There they are. The, the, the Cayman Island, the center of it, of antiquities smuggling. And if you can, if you can get your cultural artifacts into Switzerland, then you they can get them get back it. out of Switzerland. Oh. And uh, there's no direct link with anybody that has a treaty or a law. Weird. Uh, Weird that they're allowed to do that and that they do that. <laughs> uh, and so that is the status of international treaties for the protection of antiquities. Thank you. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark being set in, uh, what was it, 1935 or so? Maybe, I'll look and see. That would have been about the time of the Rorick Pact, uh, but definitely before any kind of treaties that had any kind of teeth. 1936. 36, yeah. Yeah. So they, they probably- Yeah, they just did whatever the heck. They probably wrote this with UNESCO in mind, and since it was signed in 83, uh, probably was in motion in the U.S., and they knew this was happening, and they're like, okay, this this treaty is happening in the U.S., we know about it, we'll refer to it. Right. And pretend that it was there in 1936. Well, to make it seem like he's not a grave robber, unless it was, like you said, it was supposed to be a wink-wink, oh, we know you're, you're following the treaties, you know. Yeah, yeah, say no more. I feel like they're not super clear about that because there is still to this day um, most people come down on the side of Indy was not a good archaeologist but that is more of a a more contemporary, contemporary. argument and 
in the past, it's like so many people were inspired to become archaeologists because of these movies. You right. Know? So people weren't being like, because he's a terrible archaeologist. <laughs> right. <laughs> Who doesn't follow the rules or do archaeology, but is actually treasure hunting? How about you, Zoe? Oh, also, thank you, Brian. That you was are that was I like knowing all that and thinking about. Thank it. you for allowing me to hear one random line in a movie <laughs> and uh, and just just chase it wherever it goes. I have several different sections of my trivia this time. Uh, okay, but there's... first I want to check in on with you. How oh, are you doing okay. over there with your COVID vaccine sickness? I'm all right. I keep having to take this sweater on and off because of hot and cold <laughs> flashes, but I'm drinking some bubbly. Uh, I'm I'm okay as for right now. You're not in a fever haze? Not currently. Uh, well, that could unless... make the talk more interesting. Yeah, I know. Could you be in a fever haze? <laughs> Could I be anymore in a fever haze? Um, yeah, I, so I have several, I have several sections, like segments here, um, because there's a lot of really fun trivia for this movie. So my first section is called "You and I are very much alike." Um, <laughs> so George Lucas had an Alaskan Malamute dog named Indiana, which was the inspiration for the name Indiana Jones and also was the inspiration for Chewbacca. Like he <laughs> fashioned his his Chewbacca after his dog. Um, and now I can picture the dog. Yep. Apparently, John Reese davies really reminded Spielberg of Falstaff. Um from oh. Shakespeare's Henrietta, and that was ended up being like one of the character inspiration notes for Sala was to be like a Falstaffian figure, huh. which I totally see now that I'm. I am the monarch of the <laughs> yeah. sea. We just saw John Rhys Davies in a bad movie, didn't we? Yes, um, Grizzly Two. He was playing a <laughs> French Canadian trapper? trapper. Yeah, fur trader. <laughs> By bad, you mean play a bad guy, or it was bad. It's oh, bad it movie. was real bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, tot, tot, is that tot? We're saying tot. It's I know it's T H O H T. Yeah. Oh, T O H T. I yeah. haven't seen that. His well, he was so he was totally based on Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS. Yeah, Himmler was the one that was Nazi really Germany. into like paranormal stuff, right? Who's also totally like inspiring you know like in jojo rabbit you know that's a lot of like the um it is taught taught yeah so he was totally supposed to look like him which also makes Mm -hmm. sense um the oh this one's fun have you ever considered having a career where you just mostly play monkeys because Frank Welker, who did the voice of the monkey in this movie, was oh. also the voice of Abu and Aladdin. Oh. I am surprised that that's just a person doing that voice. Mm-hmm. I figured they found some some sounds that they captured. No, it was straight up a like, like a voice actor. I would love to like be so good at like I don't know, being a monkey or like one animal impression that I'm just like the go-to monkey guy, you know? <laughs> go-to monkey guy. That's my the specialty. story of Zoe Gray. <laughs> um, last one in this segment, which is kind of about like the inspirations for things. Um, uh, on a slightly different vein, Melissa Matheson came 
to visit the set because she was married to Harrison Ford at the time. Um, and she and Steven Spielberg wound up talking. And uh, that was when E.T., like the concept of E.T., like blossomed during shooting breaks of Raiders mm. um, wow. out of some of those like conversations. Like I think that's where like the pitch for E.T. came from. That's cool. Which is fun. I just can't imagine having so many good movies as a, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or like iconic <laughs> movies. Very, very iconic, especially from the 80s, our childhood. Um, our next session is called Bad Dates. Um <laughs> Bad this date. is all about just the crazy things that happened on well okay so like like Harrison Ford did most of the stunt work for this for the things he does in this movie including uh the time when he gets dragged behind a truck um that stunt was inspired by John Ford's movie Stagecoach um and they wanted to try it and Harrison Ford did most of the stunt work he ended up bruising his ribs um but when he was yeah, like we saw that recently yeah I think it was either like a soldier or a Native American who went mm. underneath the coach I mean it's such a cool oh, stunt yeah. I remember yeah. that now yeah but he did get hurt doing it but when he was like asked about it later, like, were you nerve? Like, were you worried about doing that? He said, if it was really dangerous, they would have filmed more of the movie first. <laughs> <laughs> That's good logic. He also had to actually outrun that boulder, like, for like 10 different takes over and over. <laughs> um, but and it wasn't a real boulder, right? Well, it, it was. Yeah, sure it, it wasn't was made out rock. of. I mean, it wasn't made out of actual boulder material. But you mean stone? <laughs> <laughs> boulder material. What did they make boulders out of? <laughs> hey, hey! What are we gonna make this boulder out of? It was like a fiber thing, but don't still use like gold. It'll be to... too heavy. Okay. <laughs> One thing that was real was uh, the out of control airplane um, ran over Harrison Ford's knee. But oh, the, the one where he's like fighting the big guy when they're mm -hmm. trying to. Okay. But oh. the heat, th they were filming in Tunisia and it was just horrible, apparently. Like all of the cast and crew got sick except for Steven Spielberg because he only ate food that he brought from home, which was mostly like cans of SpaghettiOs. Like everyone was sick. It was crazy hot. And the heat turned the the rubber of the tire of that airplane so soft that it didn't crush the bone in his knee. It just t tore a ligament. Wow. Um, and he just wrapped it he in ice and kept filming. Airplane drive over him. Yes. Wow. Um, Alfred I mean, it was a small, like, one-man airplane, but yeah, yeah but still. still, I wouldn't still. even want a bicycle to run over my knee. <laughs> <laughs> a bicycle. I mean, that would hurt. I guess. <laughs> um... We talked about Alfred Molina. That's his. This is his first credited screen role, and I he know, spent he's so cute and young. His first day on set, covered in tarantulas. Oh, <laughs> baby! Imagine that being like your intro to like. I don't want to. And you have to lick a poison dart. <laughs> they probably had a stuntman do that. And in the in the seven thousand snakes in the there, mm -hmm. there were seven thousand snakes in the well of souls scene. They also like had to like make like not all of those were real snakes because they were like going around at every like pet store just trying to get so many snakes. Um, but some of them were real, and a python bit uh, the hand of 
first assistant director David Tomlin and would not let go. And so he told them to grab the snake like by its tail and like whip like undulate its body like a whip <laughs> oh, so that no. it would have to let go and they did and the snake wasn't hurt and he oh, like no. went and got medical attention so basically oh, no. filming this just sounds like cr- like genuinely yeah. well, dangerous at, at least it was a python yeah they, they don't have teeth they do have like a ribbed cartilage and it, it will cause you to bleed but not like fangs would do well but like it just sounds like they don't have any kind of treaties for the safety of humans <laughs> at this point. There's no, u- I mean, don't they have unions? Aren't they taking care of these people? Letting them be bitten by snakes yeah. does not seem like it's union approved. The The body double for Karen Allen wouldn't go into the snake pit. Like she was like, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Um, I guess because lots of them were real snakes that might bite you. Um, so they got this like snake handler, Stephen Edge, who just like shaved his legs and put on a dress and stood in (laughs) for Marion instead. But what, what's the, what's the snake that is, um, that Indy faces off with a cobra. cobra. So they had a pane of like glass or like plot, like a between them in the real thing. Yeah, you can see it. You can see a reflection of well, the cobra. It was necessary because it did like spit stuff <laughs> at the the glass. Wow. Why so, did they need Yeah. I don't know. Why did they need to do all of that for real? Not sure. Why so did So they don't have to hire Ray Harryhausen to make <laughs> fake snakes. Um I have two pieces of audio trivia, sound effect trivia. Which is when when uh, Indy in the opening sequence the plane has to start in the water, they use the same sound as when the Millennium Falcon's hyperdrive engine fails. Oh, huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and many of the body blow sounds were made from them hitting a pile of leather jackets with a baseball bat, which is so fucking cool, you guys. Those those punches were so unreasonably loud. They were very <laughs> strong. In well, the it was force. hitting leather jackets with a baseball bat. And then here's just a couple pieces of, of generalized trivia. Um, you know, I, I love the part at the beginning where the Paramount logo fades into the real mountain. And, mm-hmm. That's and, cool. He really wanted to do that, so they got um, one of their producers to just go all over Hawaii to just find, like, just drive and drive and drive until they find the perfect peaks that look just like the Paramount logo. But it's such a good, it's such a good transition. When the monkey, you know, the monkey does a little Nazi salute. Hmm, they yeah. spent like days trying to figure out how to get, like, make the monkey do that, and it wouldn't <laughs> do it. So they ended up, yeah, they ended up putting um, like a. a grapes on a fishing line and like putting it right behind the camera so it would reach for them and they had to get like a lot of takes until it looked enough like a Heil Hitler salute oh god I think this is hilarious in the German like German versions of the film had to be dubbed with different actors doing the German parts because the American actors in the original movie their German accents were really really bad and they just straight up (laughs) said like wrong phrase like it was not like (laughs) script supervised well enough with the parts in German so when they tried to watch the movie in Germany they were like we have to like redo this because it's (laughs) embarrassing it it originally they originally had an R rating because of the uh, exploding head 
Um, right. And so uh, what they had to that's do, such a good spot what they good decided part. to do to make it less graphic and to not get an R rating <laughs> was to put layers of fire in front of it, which doesn't seem like less violent to me. But I mean, that melting face was so. I just love oh, that when, when I was when a kid. Todd's I was like, face <gasps> melt. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I was like, this is amazing. What am I watching? Yeah. I like it when it's kind of grody. I think that's why I like Temple of Doom as well. I mean, it was gross, but it also wasn't like that realistic. So it was just like such a good idea of like someone's face melting off, yeah. but not, it didn't look real. Well, it was like a se. super, it was super, it became super popular after the movie. The makeup artist who did it was named Chris Wallace and he's had to feel like a million calls from like people saying they loved it and also from other like makeup artists, special effect people who were like, I want to do something like this in my movie. How did you do that? Um, yeah, because it was just super, it was baller. Yeah. Lastly, I just want to talk a little about Marion, who I had a huge crush on. I think, I mean, I think Karen Ellen is beautiful and so like whip smart and funny. And I love the character. Yeah, but, I love her voice. Yeah, yeah. And also, there was an interview that I read, what, maybe last year, year before, that was just extremely upsetting um, between Lawrence Kasdan, who I think ended up, he was a writer on this, and I think he ended up writing on Empire Strikes Empire. Back. Yeah. yeah. Um, and George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. And this is this interview between them talking, like, while they were in development about the character of Marion. Um, so Kazan says, I like it if they already had a relationship at one point because then you don't have to build it. George Lucas says, I was thinking that this old guy could have been his mentor. He could have known this little girl when she was just a kid, had an affair with her when she was 11. And Kazdan <laughs> says, and he was 42. What? Lucas. What? He hasn't seen her Wait. in 12 years. Now she's 22. It's a real strange relationship. Spielberg says, she had better be older than 22. <laughs> Lucas says, he's 35 and he knew your, her 10 years ago when he was 25 and she was only 12. What? It would make it would be amusing to make her slightly young at the time. Spielberg. That's slightly young. Musing, amusing. I'm not sure. Yep. Spielberg and promiscuous. She came on to him. <laughs> what? No. Throw Lucas. them on the fire. Fifteen is right <laughs> on the edge. Let their faces melt. Fifteen is right on the edge. I know it's an outrageous idea, but it is interesting. When she's sixteen or seventeen, it's not interesting anymore. But if she was fifteen and he was twenty-five, and they actually had an affair the last time they met, and she was madly in love with him, and he dot dot dot. I just had a sadness run from the top of my head all the way down my and body. It, right. I mean, it's like it would. It'd be like interesting. Like, wouldn't that make Indy interesting if he was a twenty-five-year-old who? had sex with a promiscuous 12 year old and that's the thing is that spielberg pushes back at the beginning like she better not be 11 but like 12 to 15 i guess that's fine and and, i mean we already know kind of george lucas is not you know it's already some weird ideas about age i right but but the fact that spielberg was also (sighs) just in the room and like only minorly pushed back um Right, like she could be 15. Yeah. Well, I mean, Spielberg has like maybe three movies that star women. Right. Um, Lawrence Kasdan ended up leaving her age out of the dialogue, uh, just having Marion tell Indy that 
I've learned to hate you in the last 10 years. I was a child, which I think I interpreted when I saw it, not literally. I, yeah, it was like that kind of idea child, of like, like, I was young. I didn't know what I was doing. And you right, broke like my Right, like I was emotional. Like I was 22. I was not a like child. I was actually literally had not hit puberty. Yeah, but I guess we don't know. Like, did they end up saying it could be 15? Well, what I, are think, we supposed to think? I think at the time of filming... Well, well, and that's the thing is since they're adults now, the age difference, especially between the actors, actually is not that different than many movies like that. And we were talking about how it was inspired by Bond earlier. It's like it's not that different than a lot of male-female relationships in movies of this ilk, but it is fucked up when you think about the fact that 10 years previously, even if she's 25 here and he's 35 – she would have been 15 years old with a 25 year old, you know, like that. And we don't always think about that because it is different when you're both adults. I like but to think of him as a good guy and all it shows is what the idea right. of a good guy was in the early 80s. Well, Cause he is to supposed these men. to be a good guy. I think that Spielberg and Lucas and the people making this movie and like Harrison Ford with all his charisma aren't like I'm playing an asshole who would, statutorily rape someone but they just felt like that's slightly pushing the boundaries in an interesting way and not making him bad like they definitely weren't trying to make him bad but that just reveals their own mindset about it you know well that was great oh, oh and i i am tasked with writing an indiana jones song which i have not yet done because i've been a little bit dead ah. but um, by the time this episode comes out, it will be tacked on to the end. Um, and who it will knows be lovingly placed be at the end. Lovingly <laughs> placed at the end. Lovingly tacked on. Mm-hmm. I can't wait. I'm so excited to see to hear that. I'm so excited to figure out what I'm going to write about. Like Film Fam, inspired by true events. Subscribe to hear more stories that inspired our favorite films. For photos and links from the show and other shenanigans, follow us on Instagram at FilmFamPodcast, on Twitter at FilmFam underscore podcast, on Facebook at FilmFam Inspired by True Events. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or films whose inspiration you'd like us to explore, you can email us at FilmFamPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you all for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye. And stop. I watched a movie yesterday about this guy who's a professor. Started strong like right away He's suave and such a snazzy dresser Yes sir, and he needs to go find this ancient rock in a cave And he's swinging on vines to get there Cause he's so brave He's kind of like Tarzan But with the lasso But otherwise a lot like Tarzan and he has to fight some cavemen and also some pirates, but mostly just cavemen. Then he goes spiders. Why does it so often have to be spiders? I'm just a man with a lasso in hand trying to find old rocks.
set in the future, the past, the 1960s. He meets a woman in a bar. He saves her life and drinks some whiskey. I think I've got this down so far. And he's played by Harry Styles, no, it's a macho name. I knew there were pirates and probably also sharks and ocean spiders. He says, why does it so often have to be spiders? I'm just a man with a lasso in hand trying to find old rocks. And I remember a sandbag and a boulder and some funny lines. I remember a staircase and Egypt and he's swinging on vines. And I think I've covered the breadth of the film in this detailed song recap. I know cause I watched it all from the comfy chair with the plushy pillows and temperate air. With the cozy blanket that I can wrap And I might have gone through 15 minutes and fallen into a nap But I remember Yes, I surely remember when he said Spiders Why does it so often have to be spiders? I'm just a man with a lasso in hand trying to find all the history professor, collector of treasure and pith. No, how could I forget the name Louisiana Smith?